Let us pray this morning for the receiving of the word. God of love, we hear your call to follow. May we see that the foolishness of your word is more powerful than the wisdom of this world. May we lay aside differences for the sake of the gospel. For your realm of light and life has drawn us near, and we hear your word of truth. Turn our hearts towards you and give us the wisdom to walk in your ways. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Arguing can keep married couples together as long as they choose their battles wisely. This was reported in an article last September. Unfortunately, many of us do not choose our battles wisely. And uh, ridiculous arguments are impossible to avoid. Um, A radio station in Ireland had fun with this on their morning show, collecting some of the most ridiculous arguments of their listeners. So I thought I'd share a few of them with you. Uh, My wife and I, again, these are not mine. These are on the radio. Okay. My wife and I got into an argument as to whose friend's wedding we would attend if they scheduled them for the same weekend but neither of them are even engaged yet. (laughs) Uh, We had a nasty fight over how to properly squeeze toothpaste. My husband squeezes it from the middle. The middle! Right now, we are arguing about emptying the dryer. I believe that you pull the clothes out of the dryer, put them in the basket, and take them upstairs. But my wife insists you must fold them first and then take them upstairs to the room. We had a days-long argument over whether peanut butter belongs in the fridge or in the cupboard. Hmm. My wife and I argued about whether I should apologize for calling her fat. In her dreams... I was mean to her in a dream, and I had to apologize for that. Uh, My girlfriend threatened to dump me during a game of Monopoly if I didn't sell her the street I'd bought. (laughs) And lastly, I had an argue with my wife about folding towels inside out. She insists the label must be hidden. uh, These are pretty petty. They're silly. Hopefully they're not long-standing. People move on. Uh, But we are also aware of deeper conflict, uh, devastating consequences that might be involved. Perhaps you suffer from incurable divide within your family, or maybe you've been involved in political circles and you are fully aware of the separation that political party can bring. And the church itself is riddled with a history of division. Churches have been splitting since shortly after Jesus brought them into existence. Think of some of these groups who had to separate from the main branch of faith. Judaizers, who said that as a Christian you needed to take on Jewish rituals. Modalists, who held unorthodox views of the Trinity. Arianists, who denied the divinity of Jesus and Docetists who denied that Jesus was a human, Gnostics who preached that we had to escape from this evil world through secrets revealed only to true believers, followers of Marcion who believed in Jesus and Paul but not the Old Testament, Pelagianists who believed human beings could help themselves to stop sinning and thus could save themselves. 
And not to mention historically huge splits like the Great Schism of 1054, which led to the breaking up of the Roman Catholic and East Orthodox Church, or the Protestant Reformation, fracturing about the nature of God, the authority of Scripture, and who has the authority to lead. The fracturing of the church continues on. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordonwell Conwell Theological Seminary estimated that in the year 2000, there were 34,000 denominations. In the past 15 years, we've added another 10,000 more. This has exploded from the early 1900s when there were just 1,600 denominations. Now, truth be told, some of those numbers are a little high because they include all forms of church organizations, even independent churches that are not totally denominations. But you can still get the picture. There are so many expressions of church and belief. Some people joke that Christians have the weirdest approach to math. They multiply by dividing. But the Apostle Paul says he is not amused. He is not amused. In our scripture lesson today, Paul is distressed about a conflict in the church that he started in Corinth. And you can sense his urgency as he appeals to them. The Greek word used is a pleading, please. This is not a formal request. This is an emotional heartache for him, seeing division sharpen. And uh, the way that he reaches out to them makes me presume that some of them did not see conflict and division as a big deal. And I wonder if that's true for us. Have we become so accustomed to quarreling and side-taking that we have become numb to it, to that tension. We just accept bickering and fighting as normal. We've always seen a divided political system, a divided church, so we're not shocked by it. It's the way things have always been. Paul will not let the Corinthians be satisfied with a church that is divided. And I concur. Bitter enmity towards another person or another group, however it shows itself, should not be the norm. But if you're like me, you know the seductive lure that is defending your ground, quickly moving towards ill-founded presumptions about what the other side is going to say or do, already concluding that their behaviors are manipulative, preparing your defense for their falsehoods. Yet somehow, without becoming weak or naive, we must see division for what it is, the antithesis of the Holy Spirit's work. God in God's very nature is one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. Jesus prays for his disciples and therefore for us saying, Holy God, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. We've been engineered to reside with one another. To tear one another apart is, the, is to operate outside of God's design. We should not let ourselves be insensitive to typecasting, 
ugly division, side-taking, but that stabs at the righteousness of God. A lack of unity should be seen and named. So what was at the heart, though, of this particular fight in the church? We might say they had too much of a party spirit. Uh, not a fraternity party, no. It's more of a schism, disunity, side-taking towards false loyalties. Some were proclaiming, I believe most in Cephas's ministry. Cephas, that's Simon Peter. He's known because he spent time with Jesus. For that reason, some believed his message to be weightier. Those who were members of the church in Corinth who had a Jewish background would think of him with special appreciation. Others defended, well, I believe in Apollos. Apollos was a more cosmopolitan figure. The succeeding pastor to Paul in Corinth, a great debater, a provocative preacher, trained in Greek philosophy. He had a cool persona and style that was heralded by some. Others said, well, align me with Paul forever. They wanted to stand with the person who founded the church. Who doesn't like having a feeling of a personal relationship with the founding pastor. Yeah, Paul knows me. Well, the rest of you are all wrong, bellowed some of the crowd. We have a true track on Jesus once because he tells us directly. You know, even though the names have changed over time, Christians still speak of their loyalties to certain names, certain church leaders. I follow Joel Olstein. Well, I follow Pope Francis. Why well, follow Adam Hamilton? Why well, believe in Rob Bell? And every time we do that, we announce whether we are evangelical or Catholic or mainline Protestant or progressive. And I wonder, is this really such a terrible thing? Not really. I mean, the church needs inspirational leaders, and diverse leaders will bring unique followers. But looking back at that ancient church, and how they're operating in this system where networking leads to status by who you claimed as your authority determined the power you held. Patronage, it was called, involved making powerful friends who would support you to exercise control over people lower down. Everyone from community officials to business owners would strive to elevate their position by aligning with the right champion. And their preferred pastor was just one more choice of who would get them to the highest place of honor. And are we not terribly different in our choices, sometimes picking a side because of some moral obligation, but more often, Choosing alignment with what will bring success or fulfillment or validation. Think of why you choose sides. Maybe one reason is mutual self-interest. You and I both desire that there be powdered donuts out in the Welcome Center after church. But somebody comes along and says they're unhealthy and shouldn't be allowed. I think you and I need to join forces and take a side and stand against those donut destroyers, don't you? 
mutual self-interest. Sometimes we take sides based on what could be called reciprocal altruism. I think our Sunday school class should write letters of encouragement to people in prison. You want the class to go out and have fun and paint pottery. I really have no interest in painting pottery at all, but I'm going to act like it's the best idea this class has ever had because I know you're going to help me promote my letter writing project. We take sides so that we both benefit. Sometimes we take sides because we just need to feel a sense of belonging. Belonging. I know other people like worship that includes lots of instruments and voices, but I think worship should just be done by bagpipes. And so you and I will form our Pipes for Praise group and we can belong together because we understand each other, we make each other feel safe, and we define what belongs and doesn't belong. Sometimes we just need to be with those that think like us. Taking sides for these reasons, fighting for the same cause, or I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, or it just feels good to be with those who agree with me. That all feels natural, doesn't it? It's strategic. It's wise. But Paul promotes foolishness, hmm. changing of attitudes, from taking sides to advance our own cause. Paul has seen the adverse effects. Division leads to bitter animosity. We have the truth, we might say. We have the answers. We have the knowledge, and they don't. People believe that the issues separating them are so exceptionally significant that they reject those who have different views, that they break fellowship with them, and they even condemn them. So Paul uses the term brothers and sisters to define his church, because even those who have a different perspective, a different point of view, a different interest, we must hold them with the spirit of care and compassion and love as a family. Parker Palmer calls for this appreciation of otherness when he writes, it's true that we spend most of our lives in tribes, lifestyle enclaves, he calls them, and we think of the world in terms of us and them. But the good news is us and them does not have to mean us versus them. Instead, it can remind us of the ancient tradition of hospitality, giving us a chance to translate that into the 21st century, where we understand hospitality as the notion that the stranger has much to teach us. Which brings us to the cross. To the cross, Paul's remedy for division. Paul invites us to see that cross, and when we do, see this symbol of humble self-giving. When we see it, we are transported to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Extensive suffering, brutal agony, the laying out down of life, nothing that is lower, more shameful, more dishonorable than being crucified. Sure, in his power, Jesus could have leapt 
from those wood beams and cast his tormentors aside, but instead he gave himself away, gave his privilege, his preference away, and so doing so gave his father's love to all. All were worth this death and his life. You know, Paul exemplified the cross at this time of temptation in his leadership. How many leaders, how many of us, when there was fighting for allegiance and whose side people would be on, who wouldn't try to pull more people to their side? Who wouldn't want to boast their personal stats? Who wouldn't want to increase their own numbers of likes? But Paul points away from himself. He points to the cross and the one who bared it. The cross tells us who we are. If side-taking is all about self-promotion, then Christ-following is about self-demotion. The answer is not about the wisdom that we've accumulated, the power that we hold, the rightness our group has collected, but it's the sacrificial love of Christ. Seek humility. Seek humility. Christ at the center, over party or small group or denomination or nationalism or class, over every dividing name is the signature that we are a child in the body of Christ. And the cross tells us how to treat others. If side-taking is about knocking others down, then Christ following is about piecing others together. If everyone is worth the blood of Christ, who am I to destroy another person because of their point of view? Who am I to allow abusive language or threatening tone or demeaning verbiage to exist in my sphere of influence? Who am I to claim the extensive rights on all morality or the solutions to every problem or the wisdom that can direct every choice? Who am I? Can we not listen? Can we not learn? Can we support our point of view knowing that the grace of Jesus holds those also to whom we disagree? Can we acknowledge that side for which our passion rests is minuscule to the passion of Jesus bringing creation together? Mr. Mitchell stopped on a family vacation to have dinner at Plain and Fancy Restaurant in Pennsylvania. Like most places, he expected that the family would sit down at a table by themselves the four of them, you know, the family of four, to look at their electronic devices for a little bit and then rehash the day, keeping all of their family stories, family opinions, family issues to their table, to themselves, you know, dinner. Well, that's not the way they did things at Plain and Fancy. They sat at this huge table with who knows how many other families from all other kinds of places, you can imagine the scene, MAGA hat-wearing people and hijab-wearing people, uh, olive-skinned, cocoa-skinned, Mercedes-driving, Kia-driving, PhD-boasting, GED-hoping, uh, suburban-dwelling, hay-baling, 
you know, and they all had to eat there, family style. Pass it around, touch my hands, bump my elbow. They had to learn each other's name to pass the food, to pass the mashed potatoes. They enjoyed a bite of chicken while hearing about another's exciting turn of events or shattered expectations or stories of origin, hopes for tomorrow. No doubt everyone around that table had a side. No doubt all of them had a name to whom they would align. But for now, plain and fancy, initiated community, a listening, a knowing of one another that was unexpected yet so gratifying, a tiny glimpse of the reality that all of us should be in agreement and there should be no division among us, but that we should be united in the same mind and the same purpose, a cross-shaped life. Thanks be to God. Amen.